Hello and welcome to this week's Alpha Podcast. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, uh, joined again by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Yeah, good, thanks. Excellent. Um, what we're going to talk about this week, uh, I know Terry Smith has uh, has uh, sent out an annual update, um, and I know you're uh, you're a big fan. Um, so so perhaps we can uh, we can look at that. And then I think there's a few companies that you're interested in talking about. Burberry uh, being one of them. Uh, Pets at Home. I think you wanted to have a little chat about. Yeah. And what else yeah. are we going to talk about? What Watkin what, Watkin Jones. Watkin Jones. Watkin Jones. But let's but let's start with Terry Smith. So what, what's he uh, what's he been saying? Well, Terry's put out his um, his shareholder letter this week, and it's all, always a good read. And um, lots of lots of common sense. And again, you know, another another very very good year for for his fund. Um, unlike you know, like any prominent professional investor who's who's achieved a lot of success, um, their words are often very closely scrutinized for, for deeper meaning and, um, and takeaways for, for your own investing. And I, I, I thought that uh, it's really interesting stuff that perhaps um, not really, I mean, there's been a lot of mention of mention of the letter in the press and on social media and things like that. But for me, for me, the most interesting part of the letter was his, his comment about, um, about valuation, which is something that fascinates me with his his fund um, for years, in that the three tenets of his of his philosophy are to buy good companies, do nothing, and don't overpay. So I had a I had a good look, crunched a few numbers, um, looking at looking at the performance of. Um, of Fundsmith over the last not not since inception, but um, since two thousand, the end of two thousand and eleven. Um, T- Terry gives two really very helpful numbers in his report. He gives the trailing free cash flow yield, which he uses as a, a valuation benchmark, and he show and he also tells you the free cash flow growth, the weighted average free cash flow growth of the portfolio. So what you can do with those numbers in a spreadsheet is that you can work out um, what drove the performance of the portfolio. So was it change in value? What, how much of it came from change in valuation? How much of it came from free cash flow growth? And also you can then look at the other bits such as charges and currency differences and that kind of thing. Um, I, I did the numbers and about half the performance since the end of two, 2011, and that's a, the cumulative return since 2011, at about 375% there or thereabouts. The cumulative return since inception of 449%, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, but I can only play with the numbers that I've got to do this exercise and then in the sort of from the end of 2011 to the end of 2020 half the return came from change just under half the return came from changes in valuation so a reduction in the free cash flow yield of the portfolio just just over half came from cash flow growth and actually the free cash flow growth of his portfolio has been really good 
So, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the takeaway here is that you can buy highly profitable companies, but if they don't grow, they won't make you money. And, you know, this is something that I, I think put my hands up and say, this has been a learning exercise for me over 20 odd years is, is the fact that you, you shouldn't be afraid to pay up for growth because it's growth that makes you money from shares. And, you know, I, I think certainly a lot, when I was a lot younger, so I didn't give enough consideration to growth and I f- focused more on like v- the valuation part of it. And I think what's also become very apparent with very, very low interest rates, investors have been able to pay higher valuations for growth and make a lot of money from it. But I, what, I, what I thought was really interesting is that is just how more expensive the share the shares of his portfolio have become. And at the end of two thousand and ten, um, the portfolio was on a free cash flow yield of about seven percent, which is a, you know quite a nice number, particularly if you get the growth on top of that. And at the end of two thousand and twenty, it was only two point eight percent. Yeah, Terry Smith says uh, this is uh, making him nervous. Yes, and it's the first time I think I, I can remember him commenting that you know about valuation making him a little bit nervous. Um, you know, he makes the comment that um, valuation gains are finite and reversible, um, but he doesn't he doesn't see the catalyst. Of a, which would bring that down, which would be a rise in interest rates. But what I thought was interesting was, is that I think he's right about interest rates, but the other thing is inflation. Now, Terry Smith, if you go and read his reports backwards, um, going back through the years, he, he talks about what he thinks a sort of base valuation. And, and you know, he's looking for, more a free cash flow yield, starting free cash flow yield that's more than the return on bonds. He also rightly points out that bond prices have been manipulated by central bankers and that interest rates on bonds are artificially low. So what he's essentially said is that he wants uh, 1% more than inflation as a sort of base minimum yield. And the interesting thing now is that, you know, inflation inflation is still quite low, certainly by historical standards. Um, but inflation expectations, whether they're right or not, are rising, particularly in America. So if you look at if you just if you look at um, sort of if you look at the estimate of inflation of expectations by most people do it by comparing the yields on inflation-protected bonds and treasuries and looking at the difference between them. And in America, rough and ready sort of expectation of inflation long-term is about 2%. So if you add a percent to that, that gives you a 3% yield. And his portfolio is on 2.8%. So I can see why he's nervous. Um, And I think what it means is obviously... You can you're, you can grow your, the thing about equities rather than bonds is obviously you can grow your yield through profit growth and through cash flow growth. 
And we've had a period of time where the valuations of shares have increased a lot faster than cash flow growth. And it looks like we've got to a position where that looks a lot more difficult now. But, but Terry Smith, I mean, if you look at the components of the returns that, as you've calculated them, you know, there is there is growth here. So yes, uh, I think, you know, what you've, what you've said is that Fundsmith has enjoyed a, a, a very much a valuation of market tailwind, but at least at least this portfolio has companies that are growing and are growing their cash flows. Uh, there is there is substance to it. So should investors be nervous as well? Yeah, I think they probably should. I mean, I think you know what it shows is that he's done a really good job with the companies that he's picked. You know, every, everyone's had a valuation tailwind, not mm. just him. Not. You can't just single him out so no, he's had a valuation tail and everybody has. But the but the bit where you can see his skill is 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 where you you know in picking the companies that are able to grow. So, yeah, so, so the skill element of, of what he does is, is on display here in the numbers that you've you've crunched. Yes, and you can see that with with the changes that he's made in his portfolio over the over the last few years as well. He's swapped out slow growing companies for faster growers and um I, I think he's i think he's done a really a really good job you know um and i i thought i thought his report i i, I thought i thought it was very refreshing for him to to I and mean, he's a pretty candid guy anyway um but i thought it was you know he's been very upfront with investors in this letter and i think he's i think he's right He's got some companies. We we interviewed him actually, didn't we, for the um for the Christmas double issue for the relaunch issue, um and and one of the companies that he talked a lot yeah. about in that was was Facebook, um which I think he's a big holder of, um and and he was he was he was still relatively bullish on the company, but you know some companies the, the, the backdrop has changed a little bit for for that sector. I, I was always surprised that that Facebook was a company that he would own. Yeah, I mean, you think you know why why do you own Facebook and not own Google, for example? Um, you know, both are, you know, have similar characteristics, network effects, advertising, advertising businesses. Um, I don't know. It's, it's not. It's, it's done okay for him. Mm, it's, it's it's what happens next that worries me slightly more. I yeah, mean, I, I agree. It's not. It's not a company that I personally would feel co- that comfortable with. Um, I think that, you know, there's this big, big thing going on at the moment with privacy. And I think, you know, this is, this is a, a growing theme in tech and social media and use of the internet generally. And it's something that Apple is making a very big play on in the, you know, saying, look, buy our stuff. We we can we can help you take control of your you know your privacy and Apple and Facebook have got into a bit of a fight about how Apple can stop you know if you download the the Apple the Facebook app off uh, the App Store on Apple that you can stop Facebook chase um, basically chasing you around and then we have this thing with WhatsApp of course recently um, which the company have rode back on. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I have concerns about, you know, the business model of, uh, um, I know you were talking about it with, um, Megan as well this week about tech. And it's interesting this morning that 
you know, Google, it's a slightly different thing, but, you know, governments are beginning to stand up to tech companies. The, you know, the government in Australia is, you know, saying to Google, you, you, you've got to start paying newspapers for the, for the content links on your, on your Google search page. And Google's now threatening to withdraw its search engine from, from Australia. Um, now, whether that's a, a credible threat, I don't know. But this is the kind of thing that's that's going on here. And you can think, well, you, you can't help feeling that this kind of story, this kind of face-off face off between governments, consumers, competition authorities, and some tech companies has got a long way to run. Yeah, I mean, that, the whole regulation thing was uh, the monopoly antitrust thing was rumbling on in the back. It seems like it's been rumbling on for as long as I can remember. Um and and it, and it all seems to change. Uh, a week or so ago, when uh, when when Donald Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, um, but uh, but yeah, you know, it, it, maybe that was the catalyst that, that it, as you say, policymakers uh, needed to get their teeth into these companies. It escal- It seems to have escalated very quickly, um, and I would be worried about tech right now. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. I I can see can see actually some positive outcomes for tech from certain scenarios you know certain breakup breakups of tech companies actually could be really good for investors because they end up with something that's worth more lauren who was also on the podcast wrote that uh, wrote that story a while back because you know the threat of, of the breakup of, of of these companies as you say i mean you know, actually spin outs is a great way of creating value <laughs> for, for shareholders um so yeah. instead of, instead of having one very large tech company you have three slightly smaller but still very large tech companies that can can grow individually so you know, with, with with management focus. So yeah, it's it, it it is a funny one, but the regulatory side of things does seem to be getting a bit murky, and that is something that Terry Smith has invested in. But generally speaking, I mean, it's a great fund. He can only do what the markets put in front of you. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's done done a very good job. He does. He has. Should we should we talk about some companies? Um, let's talk about Burberry, um, which is sort of it's one of those quality luxury brand companies that that, that that these quality investors i don't know i don't think terry smith owns burberry or does he i don't think he does no he, he owns he owns lvmh he's LVMH. lvmh there you go so 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 that's that's the that's he's in the theme as it were what's burberry telling us about luxury goods because it had a bit of a wobble unsurprisingly at the uh, at the beginning of 2020 um i think i think they are uh i mean things are quite tough when you you know Fifteen percent of your shops are shut. Another nearly sort of thirty-five percent of those are on restricted opening uh, opening hours. Could, um, could be worse. They could be JD Weatherspoon, who you've also written about this week. I think it's a hundred percent of their uh, their establishments are shut. Yeah, yeah, it could be it could be worse. So, how's Burberry coping with this uh, anyway? Not bad, not bad. It seems um, it's doing it's doing quite well in. In places like China, South Korea, it's doing well online. Um, it's doing well selling more goods, more products at full price rather than having to discount. But it's still selling less than it was a year ago. And this, this is this is a company that has been struggling. You know, if take take COVID out of this, you know, the the Sales and profits of this company have not really gone anywhere for quite quite a few years now, and um, 
I'm a, I'm a little bit skeptical as to what the real attraction and power of the Burberry brand is. I'm I'm not not convinced. If you look at it in terms of creating something that people aspire to, um, I, I think people would much rather buy uh, one of LVMH's um, bags, you know, than than a Burberry bag. You know, I look at, you know, I, I get the I get the theme, you know, of of the sort of emerging moneyed middle classes in in Asia. Um, but this is this is a funny business. It's almost like the products become more valuable the more extortionately expensive they are. That's luxury goods for you. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, how, that's how it works. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and Bur- Burberry products are expensive. Um, you know, not something that I kind of understand really. Um, to cut, you know, to to pay for something like you know, to pay thirteen hundred quid for a trench coat just seems madness to me. But there are people out there out there doing it. In, my my kids drag right. my kids drag me around the luxury goods retailers of Europe on our various travels, and yeah. I mean, you know, you do see people buying. I mean, it does tend to be where we have been. Um, uh, Non-European tourists who spend most money in European luxury goods outlets. So the travel the travel ban must have, have, have thumped some of these companies. It has, and there's a, there's another thing, you know, there's another thing, you know, which is not particularly favourable for for Burberry is that um, now that we're out of the EU, um, it used to be the case that non non EU travellers coming into the UK could reclaim the VAT. VAT on luxury goods purchase, and they can no longer do that. And um, you know, Burberry's been very upfront and said that it thinks that um, it's going to reduce the attractions of you know luxury goods shopping within the UK. Um, well, they just had so to head a bit of a. They just had to head out to Bista Discount Village in in the co- in their coaches to, uh, to to get the the VAT back through discounts in uh, instead. Uh, yeah. Have you ever been up to Bista yeah, Village? But have you been up there? I haven't. No, no. <laughs> it's a brain tree village. <laughs> Freeport. Yeah, not, I don't think yeah. there's a Burberry in Freeport. <laughs> no, no. But um, I don't know. I mean, I just think that you know clearly if you if you're looking at this from the perspective of a UK investor, then there aren't really many ways to play luxury if you're restricting yourself to to UK shares. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of it in things like, you know, Diageo. You can, you know, you've got a bit of exposure to premium spirits, high-end, expensive, single-malt scotches and Johnny Walker Blue Label and things like that. Um, but I just think if you wanted to play this theme, then, um, you know, if you look at something like LVMH, you know, they've got, then, you know, this is the problem that Burberry is a sing, really a single-brand company. Whereas a lot of the others are are multi-brand, you know, we look at LVMH, which we just, you know, the Terry Smith effect. Now, I don't know if LVMH is going to be a good investment, but it makes twice the profit margin on its leather and fashion goods than Burberry does. So Burberry makes about 16%. um, LVMH made about 33% in 2019. 
And it's just got some fantastic brands like Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Givenchy, um, Tag Heuer watches, fancy champagne and stuff like that. You know, it's got a portfolio, a diverse portfolio of luxury brands. Why would you not own that? And okay, rather than Burberry. And it seems to me that the main sort of bull case that you can make for Burberry is that it's undervalued relative to to other global luxury good companies and i think i think it does you know it's and there's a good reason for that it's just not as good a business i was going to say i mean this is often how people look at companies it it, it, you know valuation relative to their peer group but but i mean that that seems a very lazy way of suggesting something is is undervalued yeah it's surely the business performance determines how, how a company is valued yeah, and th- this company has been dragging its heels for the last few years. Before, before my experience of the times I've covered Burberry, which I did some time ago, was that it, it it always feels like it's sort of trying to find a new direction all the time. It's it always seems to be shifting in a slightly different direction to what it's been doing before. There seems to be too many changes, of course, here for me to see a business that, that I think really knows where it's going. Yeah, I think the hope the hope for this is that somebody comes along and buys it and integrates it into their portfolio. LVMH from the sound of things. I, I don't know. I don't know, but I just I just think as a standalone, I I I feel a little bit underwhelmed by it when I look at this. I just think, okay, it's it's all right, you know, it's it's got it's got a brand. I'm just not. I'm just not convinced it's that strong, um, particularly outside the UK. And I think that's. I think that shows in in, in its you know historical results. Um, and I think it's going to have a job. You know, getting in, getting in people's faces and saying, "Look, buy our stuff instead of their stuff." No, I think I think uh, I'll stick with JD Sports. Um, that's what I said. You know, I say you know it's like you know. But you think, thank goodness my kids don't want to buy anything from Burberry. It makes JD Sports look positively bargain-like. Indeed. Although, although I think in the luxury goods space, is, is Mike Ashley or Sports Direct or Fraser's, it's now they're still after Mulberry. I know that they, they've been uh, sniffing around that one for a while. Yeah, to get... sniffing around every, sniffing around everything. That's true, but but Mulberry was a, a company with with global aspirations of being a luxury brand uh, that's found itself falling on hard times, and you you might be able to pick up a luxury bag in Fraser's at some point at a at a much more reasonable price for you, much a, a price much more palatable to you um, <laughs> if you want a Mulberry bag. <laughs> I, I could, could not see myself buying any other bag, a, a bag other than a rucksack or a suitcase. Okay, well, let's let's stop talking about luxury goods. I think we're out of our depth when we're actually talking about the we product. We are, we are. Um, let's talk about uh, Watkins Jones. We need some, we need some positivity. Well, well, we'll we'll finish and we'll 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 get better from here. Watkins Jones. Yeah, this is this is a company I you know there's a lot to like about this one. Um, it's not the most exciting company, but it's got a business model um, which I think will appear to you know, conservative investors and also dividend investors. Um, for those who don't know it, the, the company um, builds student accommodation and is increasingly by building um, build-to-rent apartments for investors. 
And the pipeline, particularly on build to rent, looks very, very good. And there looks like um, you know, there could be a lot of growth to come come through this. And I, I just quite like the way this company conducts itself. It um, you know it buys the land, it gets paid for the land straight away by the by the end customer. It doesn't doesn't engage in much, if any, speculative building activity. It makes sure that it's got a buyer for it before it starts building, which takes away the risk. Presumably, its buyers are going to be people like pension funds. Yeah, I mean, there's been a load of investor money gone into both student accommodation and um, and uh, build to rent. So there's there's people queuing up, and Watkin Jones can go and buy it and build it for them to to meet their to meet their wishes. Is it, um, is it is it social housing or is it is it just sort of any 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 kind of build to rent? There's a bit there's a bit of affordable there's a, they've got a, an affordable housing side to it. Um but but my understanding is that the build to rent side of it is very much sort of commercial private residential. Okay. So student student property though. I mean this year has has not really been a great advert for for or rather last year it was not a great advert for uh, for going to university. A lot of students have 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 had a pretty horrible time, either not been able to go at all or found themselves locked in halls, hopefully a nice one built by Watkin Jones. Um, but, uh, but, 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 you know, it has cast a lot of questions over, over the university sector. Does that affect Watkin Jones and the outlook there on the, on the student side of things? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think this is a genuine concern. They, they, they are still quite bullish. Um, you know, there are still projections out there that, student numbers are going to keep increasing in the UK. I'm a little bit a little bit skeptical about that uh, because of the comments that you've made. I think it's it's really put a put the value for money of the and the whole experience in the spotlight. My my kids have uh, they, they they will um they're reaching their last year of of what you know what would be college or sixth form or whatever you want to call it. Um and yeah they 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 are not keen they're not keen on university, and in fact, a lot of kids this year have, 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 have had their—I mean, have had their education disrupted very, very badly indeed. Um, and you know, my understanding is lots of lots of people. I think these kids are not ready to go go to university. They, they're not going to be able to take their exams this year. I mean, the disruption is is absolutely huge. It feels yeah. like we shouldn't be underestimating this. No, uh, there's also a considerable demand from foreign students as well, um, and you know. You know, universities are a lot, you know, they're like businesses. They, they've become, in many cases, businesses. Um, and, you know, selling, selling higher education to overseas students. And that's driven a lot of demand for this kind, you know, the kind of accommodation that, that Watkin Jones has, has been building. I think in the short term, if you look at the, you know, they've got a pipeline that's pretty much in the bag. Um, and they know roughly what, you know, they're going to know what their profit margins are going to be on that. So I think the next few years, you, you could see some very decent profit growth from this business, but you will see, you'll see the mix of it change a bit. You'll see more build to rent um, coming through. And, and I think the, the current expectation is for the same same kind of revenue to come from student accommodation and from build to rent by 2023. 
slightly higher margin on student accommodation than than build to rent. Um, but long term, I think that I, I'd be quite bullish on the build to rent side of it. I think I think you know, given where we are with house prices, and you know, you see companies like um, you know McCarthy and Stone moving to you know a renting model rather than an owning model. Um, Telford Homes that used to be um, quoted on the stock exchange, they changed their whole business model in London from essentially buying, building private homes to going towards almost exclusively build to rent. Um, because because home ownership is, you know, it's expensive. Um, yeah, and, and there also seems to be a lot of brewing risks in the in the housing market as well. I mean, you know, yeah. we... we, we uh, we, we don't know how how much longer the help to buy scheme will run for, whether it will be extended indefinitely, which seems to be yeah. what the house building industry relies upon. Um, people, you know, just don't get gen- me wrong, John. Don't get me wrong, John. Renting isn't cheap. No, um, no. But you know, it comes with benefits such as flexibility um, and that and, and other other kinds of things. You know, maintenance and that kind of thing. I mean, you you pay for it, but it's. Um, it has its attractions and you know there's definitely the other thing as well that you know what's you know what's going to happen to our big cities you know on build to rent you know what's going to happen to london you know will 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 the demand for for build to rent be as strong as previously thought we yeah i mean i guess you know this all depends on the uh, the the pace of vaccine rollout and people getting back into london and and whether people ever do want to come back into london i'm i still go up into the office cuz it's much easier uh, with the equipment we have there to put the, the weekly mag out, but London is a ghost town. It's 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 depressing, and yeah, I think people are getting used to not being there. It's very very sad, and you're right; it can yeah. change the dynamic for a lot of industries like this. Yeah, we just don't know. It's, it's we, we were supposed to be, we were supposed to be being positive, Phil. We like the shares. There's a good story there. There's a good share, there's a good story there for the next few years. I think there's a nice nice income story there as well. Um, fingers crossed that everything goes right. You could be getting, you know, over 6% dividend yield on your shares in a couple of years. Um, I know there's plenty of people who like that kind of thing. And, you know, given the, the relative, the question is obviously is, you know, sustainability. Now this is, this is not a business with a lot of recurring revenues. You have to build, build to earn. Um, but I would, I would be, I would be, very positive on this for the next two or three years um clearly people's longer term view will start to start to dominate sort of thinking and perception and sentiment towards the share price in a year or so's time but they can get some more orders in and and build out this pipeline then um they're they're in a good position i think i'd rather own this than a house builder um i think i think there's a lot more uncertainty with the house building sector, um, with stamp duty, help to buy, general economic situation. This one looks. This one's actually backed by forward sales, a strong, very strong forward sales. You know, a lot longer than you would get in a house builder. So you get slightly lower profit than a house builder at the moment, but I think the, the risk reward trade off looks looks better to me. Mm. Cool. Positive. Let's finish on another positive note. Pets at home had some numbers this week. The pet boom shows no signs of fading. 
It doesn't. I think it's a very good long-term theme. Um, and Pets at Home is doing a very good job at exploiting it. And, um, you know, it's very interesting. Not so long ago, we would have been, you and I would have been talking about Pets at Home who would have said, this is another classic example of, of a private equity dumping exercise. You know, all the good... All, all the good profits have gone and left left the shareholders been left holding a, a dog. I think we did talk about that. We did talk about that. But we, I think we'd actually talked about it when, when it had started to stage a bit of a fight back. Um so 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 it was a bit of a basket case when it came to market. Um and it has been fixed uh by their new ma- their new management. There's been a bit a bit of a revolving door uh there. Um but but as we've said before, they they seem to be back on track, the numbers this week um are good. Numbers are very good, um, and they they seem to be executing you know the sales very well. Um, online's gone well. Click and collect a one hour click and collect is um, going very well on the on the retail side. And the thing that's sort of doing subscriptions to things like pet food is quite quite common, or increasingly common, and it's a good way of um, you know keeping customers on board and getting a very regular predictable source of income it's usually cheaper for the customer as well um they 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 get a discount they've now got a million million subscriptions subscription customers um which is about 85 million pounds of of annual revenues and um they're doing a good job and these these are companies companies like pets at home the specialists they've got an edge over supermarkets you know, in terms of the range and the quality of what they stock. You know, you go, if you look at things like pet food, which is probably most people's biggest outlay, apart from vet bills, which we'll come on to in a minute. Um, you, know, you go into your supermarket, you'll get a lot of branded branded um, pet food. And actually, if you think a bit and care a bit what you're putting, putting in front of your dog or your cat, a lot of the stuff that you buy in the supermarkets isn't very good quality food. And you have to go to the specialists, either direct or places like Pets at Home or Zoo Plus. Um, interestingly, Amazon Amazon are quite big in pets, and they've, they've just launched a premium brand of, of, uh, of pet food. So those are the sort of three main players, three sort of main online players. And... Um, I think it's very encouraging what's going on here. You know, you look at the numbers, but you actually look beneath the numbers and saying, you know, what's actually going on here with the customer offer? And I think it's really good. Um, you know, and, and clearly customers are responding to that uh, by spending more money with with pets at home. I think the other thing as well is the vet business as well. They, they're setting up... Um, vets veterinary surgeries veterinary practices within within their stores and this business is going great guns and they've had you know an amazing amount of new demand they've had 10,000 they're getting 10,000 new customer registrations per week and that's been going on for the last six months and the sales are coming through really well um they're expanding that business uh, they've just bought a business which gets into sort of telephone advice business for, for for on the sort of veterinary side. It's going really well. It's going really well. Um, I can see I can see forecasts 
nudging up on this one. And I know the shares have had a good run and they're, you know, they're not exactly cheap, but I, I see this as a share that's um could do very well this year. Keep, 20, 20, keep going up. Twenty four times forecast earnings. It's not Yeah. It's not eye watering. No, not in this market. But... <laughs> yeah. No, that you know, that's cheap in a market like this. Indeed, isn't it? The, the, I, the, I... the days of a P of fifteen being quite expensive are, are, are long gone, Phil. Yeah, this, this business has got momentum behind it. It's 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 got you know when you see when you see a business that is connecting with customers and you can understand the reason for it and you can see it and you can see it clearly here. Uh, you know, quite often it keeps on going well for quite a long time. So I, I think that if you look at forecasts, I you know, I think there's upwards pressure on forecasts here. Um I think we've seen this obviously pet ownership has gone up during the lockdown. Your hope would be that, you know, people people hold on to their animals when things get us back to normal. But this this business deserves a lot of credit. It's um it's done a really good job and um you know the share price is is reflecting that, and I think uh, think it's likely to continue to do so. So it's it's, it's a it's a good story. Mm. Is it bizarrely? Oh, it's in fact one of the very few shops I've actually been into in the last few months, because um, it's one of the very few shops that's open, and it was uh, and it was very busy indeed. Um, yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you, Phil. That's a lovely positive note to end on. We did it again. We've been uh, we've we've had two positive weeks in a row. Uh, so that is that is good. Um, good talking to you, Phil. Yep, thanks a lot, John. Enjoy your weekend. I've got to go and feed the dog, as it happens. See you later. And thank you all for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.